On this edition of Money with Friends, the single best investment of the next decade, we get into what people think it will be and what historical data indicates it may be and how you can use the results to place your bets. Plus, you think you, you pay a lot for healthcare, but it could be even more than you think. That and so much more on this edition of Money with Friends. Hey, everyone, you are listening to the Money with Friends podcast. I am certified financial planner, Bobby Rebel from the Financial Grown-Up Podcast, coming to you from my very grown-up kitchen in New York City. And from my mom's half-finished basement just outside of Detroit, Michigan, where we make the Stacky Benjamin Show, I'm Joe Salcihai. We take the headlines everyone is buzzing about. We use them to expand our knowledge and, yes, hopefully also make us richer. We do it all with our friends, and we tie it up with a bow at the end with a really, really profound big idea today. Super profound, big idea. I am sure Bobby, but today's piece is brought to you by acre trader. Acre trader makes it easy for you to invest in farmland. Why would you want to do that? Well, check it out for yourself. They have a great explainer video that shows you exactly how it works. Head to acretrader.com forward slash MWF for more. We are talking not about getting richer today. We're talking partly about in one of our headlines, we're talking about getting poorer. I know it's kind of depressing when you think about it, but yeah, not good. Not good. Which story are we doing first, Joe? We can talk about that. <laughs> I think we're doing. I, I feel like you're leading into one that I thought we were doing second. Uh, no, I am, but 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 that's that's uh, that is this is live and unrehearsed, my friends. That is the stuff that makes <laughs> us poor. The second one makes us poor. The okay. The first one though might make you poor if you choose the wrong approach. So we'll talk about that too. But let's see which friend is going to kick off today's show. We'll supply the coffee and they will supply the headlines. That's why I watch Money with Friends. We're going to do here, Bobby, something we usually don't do, an opinion piece. We usually try to stick to headlines of things that have happened in the news or earnings reports or the Fed or things like that. But Mark Halbert had a really interesting opinion piece here in Market Watch. And Mark, I do want to point out it's opinion, but it is data supported. Yes, absolutely. Um, And I think he makes uh, some good points. And I think if you get a chance, by the way, to follow Mark Halbert, I think he's a great guy to follow on uh, on um, on Market Watch. So Mark writes. Uh, This, the headline says, the single best investment for the next decade, is it stocks or real estate? And I can't tell you, Bobby, how many times I've been asked that question. Stocks or real estate? Which one should I do? Hmm. Well, let's dive in and see. Mark says, for money you wouldn't need for more than 10 years, which one of the following do you think would be the best way to invest it? Stocks, bonds, real estate, cash, gold or metals or Bitcoin cryptocurrency. That question recently asked of more than a thousand investors in a recent bank rate survey and the winner by a large margin. Can anybody guess it? It was real estate for every two respondents who answered stocks. There were more than three who said real estate is the way to go. Are these investors onto something? Have financial planners been wrong all these years for this column? I mind the historical data for answers. On the face of it, the respondents to the survey need to go back to their history books. As pointed out in a recent column by my colleague Katie Hill, since 1890, U.S. real estate's produced an annualized return above inflation of just 0.4%, as judged by the 
Case-Shiller U.S. National Home Price Index and the Consumer Price Index. The S&P 500, or its predecessor indexes, did far better, outpacing inflation at a 6.3% annualized rate, which includes dividends. Even long-term U.S. Treasury bonds outperform real estate, producing an annualized dividend-adjusted total return of 27 says, check out the chart below. And the chart shows uh, the Case-Shiller um, uh, home price index uh, for real estate at exactly what he said, less than 1%, uh, showed treasury bonds just below two. And as we mentioned, um, uh, stocks at between six and seven. Now, here's the deal, by the way, before I go on with this, Bobby, people might say, well, wait a minute, I heard stocks have done historically 10%. The answer is yes, this is inflation adjusted return. So they back out the three and a half percent for inflation, add back in the six and a half. Guess what you've got? You got a 10% rate of return in, in stocks. So, uh, just to let you know how this all works next, uh, he writes, if this were the end of the story, the column could end here, but it's not the end. The stock and bond market are currently so overvalued that it's not only possible, but downright plausible real estate will do better than either of these asset classes over the next decade. Maybe the investing public smarter than we give them credit for. Let's start by considering bonds prospects over the next decade. Currently, the 10-year treasury is yielding 2.1%, which is just 0.3 percentage points higher than the break-even 10-year inflation mark. So the market's best judgment right now is that your return above inflation over the next decade will be just 0.3% annualized. And if inflation's worse than the market currently expects, bonds are going to do even worse. So... Let's look at stocks. Forecasting equity performance is much more difficult than in the case of bonds, given the far greater number of factors that impact stocks' returns. But you should know that according to almost all standard valuation metrics, stocks currently are somewhere between overvalued and extremely overvalued. Furthermore, you can't explain away this overvaluation because of low interest rates. Given this overvaluation, it's entirely possible stocks will join bonds over the next decade and falling far short of their historical averages. How far short? By way of a possible answer, I refer you to the 10-year forecast compiled by research affiliates. They currently are projecting the S&P 500 will produce an inflation-adjusted return of just 0.5% annualized over the next decade. And that long-term U.S. Treasury bonds are going to produce an inflation-adjusted return of minus 07 Then he walks into, and I think I'm going to stop there, Bobby, but uh, he goes into real estate and how real estate during a lot of uh, bear markets, you know, real estate kind of plugs along. Doesn't happen all the time. Obviously, 2007, 2008, we just had. But if you look at at lots of times when the stock market enters a bear market, there's not a ton of correlation. So Mark ends up in the piece saying that real estate might be a good place to be if you... um, if you're looking for uh, something that might have less risk now than the stock market, lots to think about. Kick us off, Bobby. What do you think? There's a lot there. You're right. I think that real estate, one question I have, and we didn't call Mark up, maybe we could next time, is when he's saying real estate, is he talking about your home, maybe in the suburbs, or is he talking about a REIT? You know, what kind of real estate? Because real estate can be defined in many different ways. And, and, you know, you mentioned 2007, 2008. The truth is in many areas, housing has not only not recovered, but is down again recently. Certainly here in the New York metro area, real estate is, is having a very, very tough time these days. And people, if they if they sell their house for whatever life change reason or whatever's driving that decision, they often take massive hits 
Um, even though if they buy again, they do get in at the quote better price, it's still money that is gone very often. So real estate, it, it depends what you're talking about. And there's a, it's complicated because there's life decisions that often drive sales. It's also not always liquid if you're talking about personal real estate where you live, or even if you buy it, if you have a small business owning properties, you may have to sell at different times. If you have tenants, it's not liquid. You may not get your rent one month and so on. So it, it's not so easy to compare apples and oranges in this, I mean, apples and apples, you know what I'm saying, in this comparison, because there are different factors. The stock market, for the most part, is going to be a liquid investment. And that gives you a lot more freedom. It also means you could try to time it for better or for worse. I'm generally against market timing. And big picture, this really is a piece about market timing, because you are thinking about you're betting on the next 10 years. And that's a very hard thing to do. I know at the last election cycle, many people believed if we had the outcome that we did have, the market was going to tank. And it did not. It was less than a, it was hours really before the market recovered. I remember being at Reuters covering that. And I had several guests cancel on me because they had put out such strong warnings that if the election went the way it did, that stocks were going to be so vulnerable that they didn't feel they could go on television and, uh, discuss it and they needed to figure out what they wanted to say because they were so worried looking at that the, it's been a bull market the opposite just don't know the opposite thing happened at the end of last year i mean everybody thought around uh around christmas day uh which was which was the bottom i think the 26th 24th or 26th of last year was the bottom everybody said this is the beginning of the end this big downturn we're talking about has uh, finally hit and if you invested during that period, you did phenomenally well the first part of this year because it wasn't the beginning of the end. It was it was the the bottom of a short downturn and we took off again. So timing is horrible. By the way, to your point earlier, this uses the Case-Shiller Index, which I also had. A, I'm glad you brought that up because I had a problem with this, too. The uh, the North American Real Estate uh, Index, uh, Real Estate Investment Trust Index called the NARI Index historically has averaged about the same as the stock market, closer to that 10% range. So you're exactly right. If you're buying vacant land, right, and not, we'll talk about AcreTrader a little bit later, but once again, a lot of the, the reason why AcreTrader makes money is because of that rent payment coming out. Same thing when it comes to a REIT, when you factor that in. And we do this in front of, by the way, in front of a live uh, Facebook audience in Dillon, is here and says that. He says, issue with that is it's only taking into account the value of the property, not taking into account the cash flow if renting it. Very, very true. That cash flow is what ends up making uh, real estate more attractive. Can I say one more thing here too about real estate? Were you surprised that for every two people that said stocks were better, three people said real estate was better? I wonder the demographics of the survey respondents, because I think that may be generational. I do think that there is a stereotype that your best investment is your home. It may be the best investment for people that need to have that sort of forced savings of paying off a traditional 30-year mortgage. And then when they retire, they can sell that home and live off the equity in a smaller residence. So maybe that's a generational um, lifestyle choice that makes sense to people. People were always hammered and, you know, own your home and then you're always kind of going to have a place to live. You're going to have that safety net because it's a twofold investment. You're both having a place to live and you're building equity. And I think maybe younger people that are more open to renting homes and being more fluid in where they live, they might be more inclined to do stock market. I mean, it is a big difference, but you know, it's, you know, two thirds, one third, whatever it's, it's, it's not, it's, it's big, but not that huge. There were two for yeah. every three. 
I don't know. What do you think? I think real estate creates bigger headlines. I mean, because of the fact that you can leverage stocks, but as you know, it's hard to do, incredibly dangerous. Leverage, whenever you apply, it's incredibly dangerous. But how do most people buy real estate with a mortgage? Much more accepted, much more easy. The bank's not going to call in your loan when the real estate market uh, starts to go down. As long as you contractually, as long as you continue to make your payment, uh, you're going to be fine in, I'd say, what, 99.9% of contracts out there. So you also make a really good point with the headlines because so many people will say, my grandfather, my parents, they bought a house for you know this tiny amount of money, you know, $10,000 in 1950, and then they sold it for $2 million in 2010. But the truth is there's a lot of inflation in their time. I mean, it can be many years. So it sounds like, wow, they made so much money on their their home and it makes these big headlines. It's such a great investment. The truth is, as this article points out, the data, when you really break it down, does not really support that it did have such a big return in some cases. Right. Well, you think about it, this idea of leverage, Bobby, it creates bigger winners and also flushes the system more quickly. And so there's much higher highs. And when you win big in real estate, And I'll give you a personal example. My son is in the middle of purchasing a house in this beautiful area that's coming back in Detroit. A lot of Detroit is coming back. He's investing uh, uh, $50,000 as a down payment. He's going to put about another $45,000 into the house. The house is nicer than the one next door once it's fixed up. So he's putting a, a total of $95,000 into it, plus whatever the you know uh, realtor fees, yada, yada, all that stuff in it. The house next to him just sold for $210,000. So because he has leverage, though, is my mm-hmm. point, because he's using leverage, he can take less than $100,000 and mm-hmm. within a year turn it around for double his money. People that make that kind of money shout it from the rooftops. What mm-hmm. they don't shout from the rooftops is during 2007, 2008, leverage goes bad. My son loses mm-hmm. his job during that point, let's say, or he doesn't have a cash reserve or over leverages like a lot of people did. You know, if you saw the big short, you saw all this. Um, people, good people got swept up because of leverage. Right. So, and there is a cost to ownership. Remember, in that scenario, you're still paying the taxes. You're still paying whatever other ongoing bills you may have to pay. If it snows, you may have to figure out how you're going to get, unless you're going to do it yourself, how you're going to get the driveway plowed, how you're going to deal with the electric bill. All those bills keep going. Even if you don't have a tenant, even if the place is still being renovated and fixed up, you have these ongoing costs. You're still paying your mortgage. And you don't have that with stocks. With stocks, you just have them. Right. Unless you're leveraged and paying interest on the on what you borrowed, this is this is something else I the, I thought was interesting. Uh, our good friend Jim Wang said this: uh, being diversified is always important, and with the standard advice being index funds, you may have to eye a percentage in it by virtue of the echo chamber of financial advice. So real estate isn't a bad idea. I love that, Jim. When we would create portfolios back when I was a financial planner, we would we would look for non correlating assets. It was funny if you put if if your whole portfolio is gold. I think that's a problem. But we would take 5% of a portfolio, Bobby, and we would put it into precious metals and it would have very little impact on the upside of the portfolio. But because gold moves so differently than the stock market, nearly zero correlation, what you found was it 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 really um, uh, made the portfolio even out. So it, using these non-correlating assets, I think is a is a good idea. I'm I think I'm with with Jim. I don't think this is an either or. I think yeah. whether you're going to buy, whether you're going to buy um, an individual property or a REIT, having both might be the might be the better solution. One other thing is that people should understand the way whatever index fund they invest in works. For example, in a 
general S&P fund, very often it, that's a that's a weighted index. So you have a weighted index fund. And so you might not really realize it, but your investment is weighted towards, say, technology and, um, fin- and financial stocks, probably. And so you may not understand that you're not evenly spread out against those 500 stocks. It's a weighted index. So it's important to at least take that into consideration that if you feel the sectors that are most heavily weighted in whatever index fund you're invested in uh, are overvalued, maybe, I'm not saying it's time the market, but just be aware of that, that you may take that into consideration when you're considering a diversification strategy, that you may be more heavily weighted in some sectors just because you're an index fund. Yeah. Index fund does not mean equal weighted. Does it does not correct? It's funny. No, it's true. It it, follows no absolutely weighted, and I don't think a lot of people understand different indexes work different ways. The Dow is weighted differently from the S and P five hundred, and so on. You could be buying a ton of Apple stock, even though you think you're diversified. You could be buying a ton of Apple stock and not know it. Right. Uh, Because some of these index funds are weighted. Yeah. Ray makes a good point. Uh, He says, I know people in the 60s and 70s bought houses for $20,000 to $40,000. They're selling now for $700,000 to a million dollars. I don't see that growth again in the future. It's funny. Maybe, but um, but, uh, probably not. Probably. We don't know. There's so many factors. I mean, look at just the demographic trends. I mean, forget about the economy and all the economic cycles and investments. People want different things. My generation, Gen X, when we were coming up, there was a lot of interest in these sort of mega mansions. And, you know, you had like a room just for like, you know, exercise room and the bonus room and then this room and then that room. Now they're not as interested in that because they see the overhead in that. They see the excess in that. And so different phases, different generations value different things. And that will impact how real estate traits when it we, turns to different generations. We did a story on that a few weeks ago, didn't we? About how uh, about how baby boomers are staying in their big McMansions longer because millennials don't want them. Um, Pretty much. They, they don't want anything to do with them. it. But, but I love no, this. I, I love this point by Ray because even though Ray, you know, I look at places like going back to my son where he lives in Seattle or looking at uh, La Jolla, right? Or some areas up and down the East Coast, even you look at these huge gains on investments, but the middle of the country hasn't gotten that as much. And as we see uh, it easier for people to travel and easier for people to uh, not have to commute to work. I mean, my commute to work now is from my bedroom next door to mom's basement. Like it is super duper close. I don't have to even have a car. So with that though, you can live anywhere as mm-hmm. advancements in technology happen. And uh, you, you're seeing a lot of people opting for these smaller communities, these places where they have a, you know, they can have a standard of living that's much higher than they have if they try to live in the Bay Area, as an example, where it costs. Or New York City. Yeah, where it costs so much <laughs> money to live. Uh, I believe Bobby could have, here? Yeah, could have a diatribe. Yeah, she could have a diatribe about that. But, but but maybe, maybe Ray, uh, maybe it changes where those big gains are at is my point, is that maybe those gains do happen, but they're in a different area than they were before. I don't know. I'm, I'll be interested to see that one. Overall, though, what do you think here? Stocks versus real estate for the next 10 years. What's your thought process? Me? I yeah. my, Well, my takeaway is that history is history and does not guarantee future performance. So you need to diversify and know you cannot time the market. So my, I guess it's a split decision. I think you have to live where you want to live and 
I am someone that advocates ownership for me. Everyone has different circumstances. So that is my real estate investment is where I live. And then, uh, you know, in, uh, mainly index funds being aware, as I said, about the weighting. But uh, I think it's important to have and, and appreciate the liquidity, though. I would lean towards stocks just because of the liquidity if yeah. I had to choose yeah. a winner. I think that stocks are just more liquid and... Um, you know, we just don't know what's going to be. We, it's a, it's a, it's a guessing game. What's going to be in the next twenty years? Some of these, uh, some of these doom and gloom forecasts for stocks, like even the one Mark has here. This is my takeaway. Uh, I think are overinflated, and the reason for that is because stocks are a reflection of the company, and companies are a reflection of the economy. Uh, overall. And if I had a whiteboard uh, behind me and we had 45 minutes, I could walk you through why stocks really have to do better than zero. If stocks do zero for the next 10 years, no matter how overinflated Mark or other people say the market is, we have huge, huge problems in the economy. So I'm going to bet that stocks do fine over the next 10 years. Will they continue at a 10% pace? Nobody knows. I just go back historically like you do, Bobby, and stocks and real estate. It's I don't think it's it's either or. I still think it's both. Well said. Ready for the next one? Yes. Oh boy. Healthcare. In a shock to no one. Healthcare is gobbling up your wages. This is by Axios by the writer is Bob Herman. American incomes have barely changed over the past 20 years on an inflation-adjusted basis, and that is due in large part to the exploding costs of health coverage. The big picture, more people are plunging deeper into debt as the costs of housing, college, and consumer goods greatly outgrow their paychecks. And those paychecks have been stagnant because employers are shoveling more money towards workers' health insurance. Between the lines, employers consider a block of compensation for every employee. Health insurance, which is exempt from taxes, has eaten up a lot more of that block over time. In 1999, the average health insurance coverage for a family consumed 14% of the average household income. That according to inflation-adjusted figures from the Census Bureau and the Kaiser Family Foundation. By 2017, family coverage absorbed more than double that amount to about 31% of take-home pay. Health insurance has hovered consistently around 31% of household income since 2012 as companies shifted their employees to plans that had steady premiums but higher deductibles and out-of-pocket costs, a strategy that has largely backfired. The bottom line, controlling the cost of employer coverage means pushing back against the healthcare system and more employers are doing this as they reach breaking points. Thoughts, Joe? It was a short article, but a lot there. And that data, oh my goodness. Well, and I want to go back to this data just Dramatic. just beforehand, before anybody you know starts to take a political bent here and, and thinks that a lot of this drive up is because of the ACA. When you look at this graph, the, the, the chart of the graph, fairly consistent upswing, way, way, way before the ACA. And uh, in terms yes. of these numbers, you don't see any measurable change in it because of that. So we could, we can right away. And by the way, that was a surprise to me, but you could, you can take that right off the table that, that, that government has had any, um, has helped or hurt the rate of change with this graph. Certainly it's a mess. And certainly there's, there's, there's not a lot going on there. I mean, where are we headed with healthcare? I don't know how we make it better. 
Um, that's the tough thing. When I see statistics like this and I see this piece, and I was excited we were going to talk about this piece, but but I get really frustrated because I think I like to I like to focus on things that I can control. And I don't know what I can do to control this. Um, besides eat eat more peas, you know? <laughs> Yeah, this is incredibly frustrating. And it, it it reading it confirms what I think a lot of us see in our daily lives and that we have had the premiums may not change that much, but the deductibles have really gone up. And that means you're paying so much more out of pocket. And that's really hitting you hard. And it's going to be, I don't know where this goes because more and more people are working for themselves and therefore get hit even harder because you don't even have the employer in theory, absorbing part of it. And it's a very scary situation. It is something that we as a country do have to solve because it does have a real economic impact. I know this, I like this comment from Eric, if we can pull it up. He says, in my field, many small churches can no longer afford full-time clergy because of the cost of health insurance. I mean, just think about that. You know, you can't pay the, you know, the clergy in a church because you can't afford the health insurance. I mean, that's just terrible. Yeah, no, it, it's completely horrible. The uh, I also like what Eric says next, which is that he'd like to see more transparency in health costs across the board. I think that's a that's a, a fine trick, bundling the service, and you just owe X amount. And it's funny, by the way, and not funny, haha, but funny, sad that when you look at just to define which funny I'm talking about, the that um, healthcare when you pay for it yourself out of pocket versus going through uh, your insurer, your insurer's already working with a bunch of discounts that they've negotiated, and it, it makes it even more of a struggle for the little person. And it's creating a lot of um, time-consuming work for a lot of us. And and you also have to really educate yourself. I was very proud. My stepdaughter recently had to pick up a prescription, and she looked for a coupon online, and she reduced the cost by like 60% just by finding this coupon. But people may not know to even do that. And what's up with that anyway? Then why are prices so high when you can simply find a coupon online from the drug manufacturer, I believe it was, and get a lower price? I mean, this it's like there's no transparency. The, the prices seem arbitrary, frankly. And we don't... It's the one thing that we have to pay for that we don't get any, not only do we not get any say in the price, but we also don't even get the price before we have to pay it. We get the service. We don't know what the price is going to be. They send us a bill and we're expected to pay it. And I think healthcare is up there in the one of the top reasons why people declare bankruptcy. I don't know what, what it ranks, but it's up there. Yeah. Medical expenses. Uh, I do know uh, that um, because, well, and, and the, the, my statistics are dated, so I won't go into the exact statistics because I'm sure they've changed. But the number one reason somebody uh, defaulted on their mortgage was because they were disabled, because they had something where they got sick enough where they weren't able to work uh, anymore. Right. Uh, uh, Amika works in the healthcare industry. He's hanging out with us today, and he's the voice of doom and gloom, Bobby. He says, having a little experience working in the healthcare field, I think we're all screwed. I don't think there's anyone willing to hold the industry, pharmaceutical companies, healthcare industries, companies, or hospitals responsible. I, I will just say, stay healthy, my friends, and exercise. And I think that last sentence is good advice. But I also think this, I like I like uh, this quote from Jack Welch back in the 90s. In fact, I like it enough that I've used it as my big idea in the past, which is to accept reality the way it is and not the way we wish it were. And if healthcare is a big part of our, of our um, uh, budget now, and it's just going to become a bigger part of our budget, 
we we have to start changing our budget around to make sure that we stay solvent. Like if if you look at your family uh, balance sheet as if you're a company, a company sees the statistics that we're going through today, Bobby. The first thing they think is we've got to spend a lot of time working on this. We ha- I don't know what the strategy is, but I do know that it's very worthwhile spending a bunch of time here versus clipping coupons to save 47 cents at the grocery store. Spend time here, skip the coupons, and I think you're going to have a much better use of time. And it is a good time whenever your company has open enrollment to look through the last year and actually see how you use whatever plan you did, because maybe you do want to get into a high deductible plan if it makes sense for you, or maybe you're in one and it doesn't make sense because you have more expenses and you want a lower deductible. We should do our own annual assessments of how we're using it because it may also evolve. You may be having a baby one year and have different needs than the next year. So I think that's important. Also, that's a way to control, to have some control over your costs at least. Planning and healthy living have never been more important. And I actually think, you know, if there is a good takeaway from this, the fact is, is that uh, back in, um, and you know, when Danielle Roberts was on, we talked about this a little bit, but but when HMOs first came out, um, they were supposed to be these things that were preventive medicine. Instead, in my opinion, they just became the lowest denominator, right? Cheap coverage and you you get nothing. I mean, you you have to check a bunch of boxes to get anything done. I think this idea of an HSA with a high deductible, much better strategy just because of the fact that when I have this much skin in the game, Bobby, when it's mm-hmm. this expensive, I might eat better. I might exercise. Like, I think we're being pushed to the point that you start looking at your lifestyle and you go, man, if, if I get in trouble here, I'm not in a little trouble. I'm in a lot of trouble. And companies are aware of that. They do have a lot of wellness benefits now for just that reason. And Dylan points out something that I think, uh, some companies do have. He says that I wish I could put in what medical need I have in my insurer's website or app. Then they tell me where is the most affordable, um, assuming they have good reviews and I'd gladly go there would help to lower costs and force hospitals and doctors to adapt. I think that's a great idea. I do know that some health insurance plans do have websites where you can put in what a procedure should cost so that you can compare maybe in plan and out of plan. I don't know that I've seen anything with that much detail, but I think that would be amazing and a win-win for everyone because then you're going to go somewhere where there's the lowest cost, assuming you're getting the same quality of care and your insurance company is going to win because of what I just said. And then the doctors go on notice that there's transparency among their prices and that the consumers, meaning their patients, now have the information to make a choice that factors in price. They may still go to somebody that's higher priced because of it may be considered the best in their field or some specialty, whatever it may be, but they have the information on price and then that becomes a factor. Right now, we're flying blind. Right. Price and effectiveness, um, having that data. There's a, um, I didn't know Dylan was going to ask this, so I'm not prepared but there is a fintech company that we had on maybe a year and a half ago on the Stacky Benjamin show during our Friday fintech segment that's doing exactly this thing. And uh, it was really cool. I pulled up uh, doctors in Texarkana when I lived there and I, I saw all kinds of reviews of all of these people. And I also saw what their minimum fee was for different services. It really, it really was, was cool to see uh, this. So I, I think fintech's coming for this, uh, or health tech, whatever it is, is coming. Some of these innovative companies, I think it's going to take a while, especially since the, the insurance industry is such a uh, stalwart 
um, big lobby organization, I think it's going to be, it's going to be difficult, but I do think they're coming. Cause I think yeah. when I, when I saw this site, when I saw the site, I said, I can't wait to see this go more national. This would be fantastic. Yeah. Actually, I just remember there is a website run by a former New York Times reporter named Jeannie Pinder called Clear Health Costs. And that is just, it's not necessarily a website that you can search for your own doctors, but they are um, listing what different doctors for this, what doctors in the same specialty charge for the same procedure. So you have some sense of what it should cost in your area. Yep. So, you know, if you're going to have this certain procedure, they'll, they'll line up all the doctors and say the average is whatever. And so that's a good resource. Your takeaway, Bobby? Information is power. If you didn't get the raise you wanted, it may be hidden in your healthcare coverage. And that's partially because we didn't talk too much about this, but companies are, in, and we haven't had a lot of, of wage growth recently. Maybe that's because, you know, they do have this one, this box of this is what we're going to pay you, the compensation and a greater percentage is going towards their share of the health insurance. Yeah. Uh, my, my takeaway is th that Jack Welch saying, again, uh, face reality the way it is and not the way you hope it is. You can hope that it's going to get better. You can hope that Washington solves it. But I think the true solution is to adjust your budget because this is reality. I like that. The, reality. Well, th well, thank you. You may not like it, but it's reality. <laughs> it's reality. And I, 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 I do love that saying of uh, Mr. Welch's. All right. Speaking of something else I love. Let's talk about Farmland, uh, not just because they sponsor this uh, show, but also because it has to do a lot with our first piece. In fact, Deanna, who's here, lives in Arkansas, uh, where you'll notice a lot of acre traders' fields are, at least some of them have been over time. And uh, she says, if I can find that, she says, ironically, Farmland's had a much better return than other types, at least where she lives. And that's exactly what these farm uh, uh, men and women who operate Acre Trader are all about. By the way, their headquarters is in northwest Arkansas near uh, Bentonville um, and uh, Fayetteville, where the University of Arkansas is big ag area. Acre Trader is an investment where your money goes into buying a field. But imagine how much a whole field would cost if you wanted to buy a field. Now, the first question is, why would you want to buy a field? Well, here's the deal. You don't want to farm it unless you know about farming, but having a, a field that a farmer is going to rent from you continuously every year, especially as farmlands disappearing across the United States, that's a pretty valuable commodity. And the chance that you'll get a steady income stream from it, pretty, pretty good. The second thing is, to Deanna's point, farmland over time tends to have fewer uh, aggressive dips. On the other side, it's pretty boring, fewer big mood swings to the top. It just kind of clicks along over time. That's what farmland does. So a more consistent investment in your portfolio and an income stream that uh, often is, is like clockwork. The bad news about farmland is, of course, you're tied up. So that's where Acre Trader comes in. Instead of you buying a complete farm, which most of us can't do, or a complete field, you put your money in a big barrel. I'm sure Acre Trader doesn't want me to explain it this way, but your money goes in a big barrel and you buy a piece of that farm. So they subdivide it. So now you can get in with a lot less money than you could uh, before. Most of us couldn't buy farmland before. Now, because we're going in with a lot of different people, Acre Trader divides that up. You end up with your little plot of a piece of a field and you're off and running. By the way, you can see the different offerings that are available right at Acre Trader. So it's only available, by the way, to accredited investors, look up what that is and see if you are eligible for Acre Trader. But that's because of the fact that your money's locked up, Bobby, in this farmland. And if you need cash until they sell that that 
property, you'll, you're going to have a very tough time getting your money out. So you want to be careful there. You will get the check every year. That's part of your income stream from the farmer paying the rent, but your initial investment is going to be locked until they sell the field. Head to, yeah, I should probably say where they get this. Where do I get this goodness, Joe? How do I get it? Yes. Uh, Are you sitting down? You can get it at acretrader.com forward slash MWF. That's for money with friends, acretrader.com forward slash MWF. And by the way, uh, please use our link if you are going to check it out, because that's how AcreTrader pays us is when people sign up and use it. If they use our link, uh, that's how they sponsor the show. So thanks everybody who's used our link when they check out AcreTrader. All right. Time for the highlight of this show. The You know how you've got the ice cream and then you have the whipped cream and then you have the cherry on top? This is the cherry on top of this entire podcast. We call it the big idea. And it's where Bobby and I, for the first time ever, share out loud our takeaway that combines these two pieces. What are our big ideas? Well, you're about to find out before we end the show. So, Bobby, do you want to go first or last? I want to go last. I feel like you oh, have some brilliance about to come. I, I, I'm i not sure we that don't, I... And, and, and as you just alluded to, we do not discuss in advance what, what we're each going to say. And sometimes they're very similar and sometimes we're just on totally different planets. <laughs> we'll see. Let's, let's, let's roll it and see. Um, you know, when, uh, when companies look at their overall uh, financial picture, they often have a line and that line says general fund. And what the general fund is, is it is a slush fund that's going to be used for whatever happens to come up. Things change when they make the budget. At the start of the year, they create the budget. And by November, life is different, right? How often have you created a budget, thought it was going to last 12 months, and your expenses are way out of whack by the time July hits? Well, if we think about ourselves as if we're companies, which I think is a great way to make less emotional decisions in our budget, we'll have a line item that says general fund. Now you and I, we don't call it a general fund. We call it an emergency fund. And if the stock market goes as badly as Mr. Hulbert says it might, whether it's real estate, which might be illiquid or stocks, which might be down, we don't want to take money from those places. We want to have money to get through it. And then with our second headline, healthcare costs, eating more of your budget, if something bad happens, the chance of you being able to reach in and grab a few dollars from the budget to cover that becomes a lot more of a risk. Having that general fund, aka emergency fund in my family's budget, that I think is the big idea that combines these two, Bobby. That was really good and very interesting and nothing like what I came up with. <laughs> Fantastic. We are so different today. I like Sometimes that. Sometimes we're very much in sync. Not today, though. Shows you how well we communicate. That is good. <laughs> My big idea is that stories are historically told by humans, but the truth is data creates the plot lines and the plot twists. Stock market returns can be made to look any way you want, depending on what time frame you choose to measure, what other metrics you factor in. So in effect, humans write the story based on the data. As a journalist, I always knew that when I got a press release with a survey, I could pick and choose which data points I wanted to support the story I had already been assigned. And we as people do that all the time. We see what we want to see. People choose to believe real estate is the best investment. And there are absolutely ways to justify that belief or any belief with data. People also control the narrative when it comes to healthcare costs. They have been rising more than many people may have realized because employers have shouldered the cost or to some degree hidden the cost behind the scenes. It's packed into the general compensation package. So the data had looks not that different in terms of the premiums that you're seeing in your paychecks. 
But when you factor in those rising healthcare costs put into your total compensation for employees and possibly keeping wage growth down, by the way, the story gets another plot twist. Let's just hope we find our way to a happy, healthy, and prosperous ending to the story. Ta-da! Stuck the landing. (laughs) I love that. Two different big ideas, guys, for you to take. Two totally different big ideas for you to take away. Nice job. Deep thoughts. Very deep thoughts. Deep thoughts with Joe and Bobby. That's going to do it for today, everybody. Thanks for hanging out uh, with us. Everybody who's hung out with us here on Facebook, everyone at home. Thanks to everybody for listening. And uh, if you like the show, tell a friend, tell them, you know what, come hang out with us at Money With Friends, whether you're hanging out with us on the audio channel, on YouTube, while we make it here on Facebook, on Instagram, wherever it might be. Our Instagram is is, uh, getting very crowded. We're very happy about that, Getting, getting a lot of followers there. So thank you, everyone that's following on Instagram. I love your polls on Instagram. You're currently yeah. running a poll about whether Disney is uh, too expensive as we record this. Yes. Um, and so I put my two cents in and um, I won't tell people which way that swings, but it's, it's two thirds saying the same thing I said. Yeah. And what's interesting though, is that the survey has, we've got a lot of activity on that survey right now and the results has shifted a little bit. It was more dramatically one way. Now it's getting a little bit closer to even. It's not quite even yet, but it was a real dramatic swing at the beginning. And now it's kind of evening out a little. So we'll see where it is when we wrap up after 24 hours. That is cool. And the last thing is, if you want to see when we record these, we try to put as many of these ahead of time. If you want to hang out with us while we make them, head to moneywithfriendspodcast.com. And you can see in the schedule, we try to always put in the links to the stories that have been discussed. So if you want to learn more, and especially stories like these where there are charts and you can you can just click on the link and then you can see the charts that we are talking to and follow along. Bobby is signing everybody homework again. Mm-hmm. I'm so, sorry. Just like the grown up in the room. Bobby <laughs> Rebel again. All right, guys, we'll see you back here next time. Bye bye. This show is created and hosted by Joe Saul Cihai and Bobby Rebel, and is a joint venture of BRK Media LLC and Stacking Benjamins LLC, copyright 2019. Our engineer is the amazing Steve Stewart. And for a list of our friends who appear on the podcast, head to our website, moneywithfriendspodcast.com. You can also check out our schedule for upcoming recording sessions so you can join us and be part of the show. As with anything, remember you shouldn't take advice from any of us or any other video or podcast without first talking to your financial advisor and that the people in this episode are here for your and their entertainment purposes only. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, and we'll see you back here next time with a real episode of Money with Friends.